Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is light at death. My guest is William Peters, who's been a guest on New Thinking Aloud a previous time where we had a conversation about shared death experiences. William is author of At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. William is a licensed psychotherapist specializing in end-of-life counseling as a means towards psycho-spiritual evolution. He is the founder and the executive director of the Shared Crossing Project, where he and his research team collect and study extraordinary end-of-life experiences through the Shared Crossing Research Initiative. William is based in Santa Barbara, California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, William. It's such a pleasure to have you back with us on New Thinking Aloud. Thanks for having me. It's really good to be here again. When we spoke last, you talked about shared death experiences, and it seems that one of the key features for near-death and shared death experiences is going into the light or seeing a tunnel of light. In fact, you have a chapter in your book all about into the light. Well, yeah, the, the light is a key feature in, in the shared death experience. Uh, about 25% of our interview respondents will comment on the light. And, you know, it's an interesting comparison, uh, the light in the near-death experience as compared to the shared death experience. Because in the near-death experience, we see the light in about three quarters of the cases, and it tends to be the dominant feature. In the shared death experience, it's in about a quarter of the experiences, and it can be the dominant feature, but oftentimes the dominant feature is more the fact that the experiencer is seeing uh, the dying, their loved one uh, transitioning or progressing through the afterlife. Uh, so so that's, that's how we see the light in the SDE. I will say that the, the light in the SDE has many more presentations in the sense that in the NDE, you see the light as a destination. It is the NDE experiencer knows that they're moving towards that light. Most of the time they know that they're moving towards that light. Uh, and it's big, it's luminous, it's it's awesome. It's, you know, it's projected onto as God or Atman or the source, the divine. In the shared death experience, we see that too sometimes, but we don't see it all the time and we don't see it as much as you see it in the in the near-death experience. What we do see is that the light serves, seems to serve broader functions. It seems to um, show up as channels of light coming down from on high. It, we hear about light bridges or uh, channels and cylinders cascading light. We see SDE experiencers uh, either accompanying the dying up these cascades of light or watching, observing the dying, their loved one, 
uh, ascending in the light. So the light has a broader uh, presentation in the SDE. That being said, we see these really spectacular cases where loved ones quite literally um, in the afterlife. And you can imagine, so you're an SDE experiencer. Here you are. You're in the afterlife or presumably initial stages of the afterlife, watching your loved one in their transition. And all of a sudden, you observe a deceased loved one stepping out of the light and coming into focus to greet your dying loved one in transition. And when the experiencers report that, it is an extremely emotional experience for them because they realize, oh, there's my grandmother coming out of the light, coming into view, and there to greet my departing mother or father or what have you. So there are many more presentations that we have uh, observed and captured in our research uh, for the light, the presentation of the light in the SDE. You yourself have had two near-death experiences, and you even recount your experience where you dialogued with the light. I did. That was my first uh, near-death experience at 17 years old. Uh, I'd had a high-speed skiing accident and, and crushed my spine, catapulted out of my body, uh, was sailing away from my body and planet Earth. In fact, I had a satellite view of uh, planet Earth for a while until I went into this you know, rib tunnel uh, that was translucent. And at some point, I was enamored the whole time, pain-free. And then I see this first, this pinprick of light in the distance that got my attention. And then as I started moving towards this light, it got bigger and bigger. That's when I realized, oh, I'm dying. And I did not want to die. I had the real knowing that I had not completed what I had intended uh, to to do in this uh, lifely in this life incarnation what i what i did um what well, i should say my response was as the light got bigger was that's god and and i don't even think about it i just said god don't let me die god do not let me die i have to go back you have to let me go back so for me i mean i grew up catholic so when i saw that light it was clear to me that, that that was the divine, that was God, that was the source, the creator of all. And I began dialoguing with that light, uh, which is interesting because you don't hear that a lot in either SDE or NDE accounts. Uh, but for me, I went right into dialogue. And eventually I was assumed by that light uh, and very much at home, uh, a sense of belonging, comfort, I mean, just the most sublime feelings, that velvety, warm, pulsating light. Uh, that uh, The word I feel, it's just such a sense of belonging and oneness. I still uh, wanted to return to my human life. And at some point, I felt a pushback by this light. And I started moving back to Earth very slowly at first. And I said, thank you. I said, thank you, God. Thank you. And I started I'm moving away more. And then I heard, uh, I don't know if I heard with my, with my ears, if you will, 
I think it was more telepathic, make something of your life. And that was quite a profound statement that I have spent uh, really the rest of my life grappling with. What does it mean to make something of your life? What is it, what is a meaningful life? Um, yeah. So that was that was the light that I saw in my first uh, NDE. And I should be clear, my second NDE when I was hovering above my body in the ICU for many hours after a a, a a life-threatening blood imbalance, I did not see any light. There was no light of any kind, no light beams, no light in the distance, nothing. Um, so as far as near-death experiences go, I was in the 25% who don't see the light. It was purely an out-of-body experience. I mean, I was a free-floating consciousness, really enjoying myself as I explored uh, the 10th floor of Kaiser Hospital, Oakland, uh, the ICU and other uh, floors and conversations and patients and nurses talking. It was the middle of the night, so it was kind of quiet, but I was very much uh, at peace and enamored by my position uh, as a free-floating consciousness. I didn't even associate with the body, a physical, human physical body. You had an out-of-body experience in your second NDE. In your first, you encountered light. Have you pondered why there were differences there for you between the two? Other than kind of this sense that I was being instructed in a certain way, it's like, well, this is one type of NDE, which was more of the classical type, uh, full of phenomena, that first one, uh, you know, out of body, catapulted into the heavenly realms. I had a life review uh, that was quite vivid and compelling and humbling, I should say, a teachings on karma. I was, you know, gazing into this vast and beautiful infinite universe. Uh, the tunnel appeared to me, which seemed like a vortex, which of course exists in the NDE literature as well. The light, you know, so I had a lot of the major features. So uh, if, if God was trying to instruct me in any way about the NDE, that was, that was the more comprehensive NDE. And then the second one was more of, you know, a very specific kind of, uh, NDE. Because if you look at it in terms of earth time, uh, you know, the first NDE, while it had far more phenomena, was much shorter. I mean, it was a matter of uh, seconds, uh, at most a minute, because from the time of impact on the ski slope, uh, I was skiing with uh, a friend, and when I fell, the next thing I knew as I was coming back into my body was I was sprayed uh, by my friend John. And he said, whoa, dude, that was a wipeout. Uh, and, and that, you know, that was, he was right behind me. So it couldn't have been more than, you know, I don't know, anywhere between 10 seconds and 45. But in the second NDE, when I'm hovering above my body, that was ours. Uh, that I know because I was observing life there and, I listened to the nurses talk about patients. I listened and watched the janitors go in and out of the closet. I heard uh, kind of there were 
charting. The nurses were charting the different patients. And so I saw them doing the charting. So this was a, a long period, a longer period of time. Um, yeah. So that, so yeah, that, there's some profound differences. Some of the experiences that your research participants have shared with you are that they go to a tunnel of light. Sometimes in the shared death experience, people can actually merge into the light with their loved one or beings can come out of the light. Can you share some of these experiences with us? Yes, you've identified uh, quite uh, accurately the different ways in which the light tends to function. Um, in, in relationship to uh, the dying and the other beings that appear in the light. So one of the more common uh, expressions you hear is light beings. And if I ask during an interview, can you describe uh, that being that appeared to greet your father or that seemed to appear as a guide or whatever? Often what you hear is language like this. Well, it seemed to be a very wise being. It seemed to be, it was big. It might have, it was kind of shaped like a human being, but kind of not. I couldn't really see the face, but it was really, it was bright. There was a light coming from within. It's like they had their own light. It's like the light was shining from within them and they were uh, radiating or projecting this light outward. Hence the name light being or being of light. So that's one way we see light. We also see uh, these uh, deceased relatives or even these elevated beings coming out of the light. There's a wonderful account in my book from Mark T. Mark talks about going into being called. He's remote. He's actually in New Jersey and his father is dying in Canada in a hospital in Canada. And all of a sudden, Mark is, you know, he's in a car in the passenger seat, which by the way, is oddly enough, uh, one of the positions that we see some experiencers in when they have an SDE, they're in the passenger seat, sometimes driving, but sometimes in the passenger seat, which is a very receptive state, especially if you're not in conversation. Just think about it. You're in the passenger seat of a car and you're really not doing anything. Your mind is, you know, maybe looking around, maybe if it's night, just kind of resting, but you've got an open mind. So in this case, it's early evening and Mark, um, all of a sudden, finds himself with his father in the afterlife and his father's confused. And so he comes to his father and says, dad, uh, you know, you've died. And, and he goes, what? And so Mark ends up guiding him. And this is actually uh, one of the types of uh, SDEs that I've identified. There's four main types uh, that in terms of what I call the mode of participation or the type of participation that the experiencer engages with. And in this engagement, it's called assisting the dying. So he's assisting the dying here, his father. As he's kind of, he actually says that he carries his father. So he carries his father kind of upwards a bit, which is another theme of the SDE is ascension. 
And so he's kind of ascending with his father, carrying him. And all of a sudden, he sees his grandmother. This is Mark's grandmother, his father's mother, step out of the light and come into focus. And Mark describes this as, oh, my gosh, she comes out of this brilliant light and she is radiant herself. And then his father um, kind of fixates on his mother. And it's one of the most beautiful, loving embraces. And, and Mark says he doesn't even have the words to describe the joy and love that he saw in his father's face. He says he remembers that when his father, when he was a young child and can see it in his father's eyes. But he said it was decades since he'd seen that kind of love and vitality. And then right behind uh, Mark's grandmother is Mark's uncle, his father's brother. He too steps out of the light. And once again, it's this way of kind of coming out of the light. And the way we see it in the research is there's kind of this interest, this kind of captured peaked attention as some being comes out of the light. And then it comes into focus. And it's usually a, a deceased relative that's come to assist with the journey. And it's a reunion uh, of love and a basking in love and embracing. And uh, so that's a, that's that's one example of what uh, from, you know, from our research of Mark. But we have others. I mean, I think there's another um, case that I think your uh, viewers would be very interested in. And this is with Scott T. This was a very sad um, incident in the sense that Scott's partner and uh, her son, uh, Scott was, you know, you know, was, you know dating uh, this woman. Her name is Marie Fran or Mary Fran. And then Mary Fran has a son, Nolan. And Mary Fran and Nolan had gotten into a car accident. And Mary Fran died on impact. But Nolan survived a week later, one more week. And Scott happens to be in the hospital with other family members at the moment of Nolan's death. What happens at that moment is Scott describes ascending, rising up and entering into kind of a, a bubble of sorts uh, with Mary Fran and Nolan. And then they merge into this light. They are assumed by this light. And Scott describes it, well, first he says, I don't have the words to describe it. And this is what we hear all the time in our literatures, literature, in both the literature on near-death experiences and in our research, because we're the primary researchers of shared death experiences, same, so, same nomenclature, just we don't have the words for it. Ineffable is what we hear all the time. And Scott highlights this. I don't have the words for this, he says. And, but he says it is absolutely the most sublime, loving, awesome uh, experience he's ever had. And then uh, Mary Fran and Nolan ascend into the light and disappear. And, of course, Scott returns to his human existence. And in all of that, that can help someone like Scott to have more ease with their grief and maybe even peace with the transition of losing a loved one. I mean, you just hit on our most common uh, after effect 
well, I should say it's one of the most common. It's one of our top three. And that is that when you have an SDE, especially of this nature, where you see your departing loved one uh, in the afterlife and then enter into this beautiful light, there's a sense that everything is just perfect as it is. For one, the most common after effect we we have or we see in the, our research is, I know my loved one is alive and well, and that I'll be reunited with them again at some point. Mm-hmm. A second after effect is, I know that uh, that there's an afterlife that's benevolent, that's beautiful, that that I will be going to as well. There's a reduction in any fear or anxiety about death and dying. And then to answer your question directly, this other key positive uh, benefit or after effect is that their grief and bereavement is radically different. It's not that they don't miss the person. It's not that they're not heartbroken. They are. When you lose a loved one, it's a natural loving response to to be grief stricken to have to be to have feelings of melancholy sadness but sde experiencers do not have the added um, grief of wondering where their loved ones are wondering if they're ever going to see them again wondering if they're suffering no the context that the sde -er has received for this great transition from a human life into uh, an afterlife. The context is incredibly supportive, imbued with meaning. It makes sense to the SD experiencer. And so their grief is uh, mediated in this way. Mm-hmm. They have the loss, but they that loss rests in a greater context that, that their loved one is alive and well, that they'll see them again. Yeah, and that really echoes research by Evelyn Elsasser and her team, uh, who, where they shared that these experiences, these what she talks about as spontaneous after-death communications, that it really can ease the suffering of people. And of course, it's very sad to lose a loved one. And I want us to be careful that we're not romanticizing what happens here. At the same time, I wanted to bring to light this great uh, awareness around this light to to help everybody when they might lose a loved one. And and of course many people are on their own spiritual journeys and the light is often referred to um you know through throughout history. I also am so grateful to talk with you again William because when my own mother passed, I think I shared with you in our last conversation that I had a dream where she was hovering in the air and ascending, like you said, and she was turning to light. And it occurred to me, what was her experience like if that really was, in fact, what she was experiencing, which I think is quite likely, because she actually passed uh, just under a week later after having that that dream. In fact, after having that dream, I learned that she stopped eating and drinking, which I didn't know her death was imminent at that time. So it wasn't like I had heard she was going to be dying and then had that dream. And it occurred to me, what was her experience like? And if that was in fact what she experienced, it may, it occurred to me that perhaps 
she was maybe experiencing being in a tunnel of light. So I had like a frontal view of her turning to light. Yeah, well, I think you're uh, spot on. I, I think you were getting a glimpse into uh, where your mother was going, what was going to happen to her. I mean, it, I, I love your story because it really makes me reflect on what are the limits of you know, my research and what are the limits that we can know when you study these shared death experiences. So you used a term that it looked like my mother was going into the light mm -hmm. and maybe even dissipating or dissolving and becoming that light, yeah. which is a beautiful thought. That's kind of the, the hope of, you know, many perennial uh, wisdom traditions will, will talk about returning to the source and, and, and letting go of your identity and becoming one and no longer ever having a separate identity again. Again, for some, that's enlightenment. Um, so, you know, this makes sense. That dream that your mother goes into the light and which is very much like an SDE and then disappears, uh, but disappears not with a sense of, Oh my gosh, this is horrible. No, something very different going into the light and knowing that she is in relationship with some great loving force, that she is alive and well somewhere. And maybe she loses her individual consciousness or self, but I think most of us would be okay with that. Uh, oh, I say that. I think certainly your viewers would be with a higher sense of consciousness to give up ourselves, our sense of self to merge with uh, the light, the the great source of all being, God. We, people can use their own terminology here. But yes, I think your dream is pointing to something very true that we see in, in our SDE research. Yeah. And from my vantage point, it appeared everything you just said that uh, the language that keeps coming to me is that she was turning to light or turning into light. I'm... Looking at our research, you know, we don't have that many instances where the dying or the, the SD experiencer observes the, the dying, the one in transition, turning into light in a certain way. I think the language, we might have a few like that, but what we, what we tend to hear is this language, that the dying went into the light yeah. and was in a certain sense not so much, more like absor absorbed into the light, but I, we're not getting a sense that they're lo losing their individual consciousness. It's like they kind of go into the light and are taken up into the light, but there's not that dissolution of self. Now, as I said already, I think that would be the high bar and the aspiration for um, many of us is to literally give ourselves over to the light, lose our our egoic identity, our personal sense of self, and be completely taken up into the light. Yeah. Well, for me, that would be, I, I would think, for me, that's my aspiration. <laughs> well, and I think we're really saying the same thing. It's, it's, again, words fail. It's just, that's why it's so great to talk with you. Here on the earth side, many shamanic practitioners, energy healers, uh, there's a history of laying on of hands, even prayer, that many of these practitioners who might consider themselves even light workers are really working with the light. So 
it seems that maybe light doesn't just happen at death, that we can connect with this light here even while we're seemingly alive on earth. Well, I agree 100%. I mean, you're, you're right on it. I mean, there are all sorts of energy workers that work with the light. And I would think that that light is nothing more than the same uh, divine uh, life force of the energy of the universe, life force of the universe. And that if you're a spiritual adept in healing or even a higher consciousness, my sense is that uh, you would be working with that light and connecting with that light and sharing that light. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know that so many of us who are meditators talk about there are times in our meditation where all of a sudden it just feels like there's, it's just luminous. There's light all around. And I've even had meditation sessions where I'm thinking like, Oh my God, I got to go and turn off the light. And cause it's kind of, irritating me a little bit. And what I realize is, oh, wait a minute, that light is generating or coming from within. So, um, so yes, I mean, I think the light is, is everywhere and our, and the light can be synonymous with love as well. And, and light as being conscious or consciousness itself. So, Yes, I think, you know, when we're talking about light in the human realm, it is at worst an abstraction of that greater light. And at best, it is the light itself that we are interacting with. I just had the good pleasure of interviewing a lineage holder of the Kabbalah of light. And she echoes what you just said, William, about the light being consciousness and love and that we can illuminate various parts of our lives with our attention, our own consciousness, to uh, raise that light. Well, yeah. You now your you know your last guest uh, was obviously speaking. You know, sound very knowledgeable about a particular tradition. Um, and I think in the great wisdom traditions, it is very common for there to be common language about the divinity, the sacredness, the power, um, you know, of the light. And so, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, as a researcher of the SDE, we're talking about the same thing here. Yeah. Uh, this is a unifying force that in the shared death experience, it seems as if the experiencer is gaining access and contact and engagement with that light in a sense because he, she, they have hitched a ride with the dying, gotten into that, that portal, that death vortex, if you will, and are, uh, and are seeing the light, experiencing the light, contacting the light, and in many cases being deeply moved by that light. Catherine Shainberg is her name, and she wrote a book called The Kabbalah of Light. So what do you think is happening then with the light at death for people? I think the light is there to both guide as a bridge. It's, it's kind of a beacon. Um, but it also, like I said, it serves as a bridge in that 
you know, the light comes down in these beautiful cylinders and these beautiful uh, cascades of light. And it is as if the transitioning, the dying, are, are using that light as a stairway. It's, it's as if they're being um, called up through that light and this light serves as a portal and then the ultimate portal may be you enter into that light at the top of the, the channel of light. And we do know this. Once they enter fully into light, we never see them again. Now, I don't have any case of an experiencer saying, oh, you know, my loved one went into the light and then came back. No, this is a one-way journey into the light. So in that way, you know, we, there seems to be a common destination and the light seems to be it. Um, and as I've said, quite benevolent, sublime feelings, peace, uh, and knowing. I think that, that light gives off uh, wisdom and knowledge and insights to the experiencers that they say they never had before, like they understand everything about life. There was another story or some of your stories that really st- struck me about how the in the shared death experience, the living we're experiencing sometimes light, but also as though the room was shifting into like another dimension. This is a phenomena that occurs typically at the early stages of an SDE. So one of the first phenomena, I call these gateway phenomena. The, the dimensions of the room will shift. You'll see and I should say Raymond Moody coined the phrase change in the geometry of the room. So what he means by that is, and this is in the research quite a bit, the right angles get rounded. The, the corners get blurred. Um, you'll see ceilings just go away. Walls come down. All of a sudden we're opening into a vast and edgeless existence or dimension. So, uh, and part of that change in the geometry of the room is that light comes in and is hyper alive. It's illuminates all sorts of aspect of the experience and the heavens, which are filled with lights and stars and all sorts of, you know, really beautiful phenomena, they get closer and fill up the space that the experiencer is in. And I say the SD experiencer is there usually right near the die. Wow. So what do you say to those who might be listening, thinking, naysayers, well, the living is just stressed and they're under stress. And so they're having sort of a, a, a psychotic moment or a shift in their perception because of their stress. Yeah, that's a common critique, certainly historically of the near-death experience. And we hear that with the shared death experience, although less so. I I think what we're finding, and this is something that's been quite interesting to me, is that, you know, when our articles have been published, one, you know, recently in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and even in uh, Omega Journal of Death and Dying, the feedback we get is initially really good. Like, wow, thanks so much. That's great research. We all know these experiences happen. 
Um, this is the first really compelling, convincing research that can provide evidence for people who have had these experiences. So we get a lot of that. What's so interesting is we don't get so much of the naysaying. The, those uh, who are reading those academics and medical practitioners who are reading this are staying mum. And why? Because now there are two distinctly different uh, data sets that point to a near-death experience and a shared-death experience that are, that are pointing at the same experience, but in the, in the near-death experience, it, it has historically been discounted um, for, you know, uh, physiological processes uh, that are occurring in the brain body that are essentially shutting down that existence and causing the hallucinations that, that they, these are referred to. Well, there's none of that in the shared death experience. These experiences are happening in healthy minds and bodies. The, the bereaved or soon to be bereaved is, you know, they could be under some grief distress. That makes sense. But they're sound in mind and body. There's no distress, no physical, physiological um, stress upon them. So it gets more and more difficult to dispel the sense that these experiences or the appearance of the light is somehow uh, a figment of the imagination of, in, in our case, a shared death experiencer. It just doesn't hold water. Right, because these shared death experiencers have these experiences for a moment in time. Correct. These are happening for a moment of time and they're healthy before they have the experience, they're healthy after. The assertion would have to be that they had a momentary grief hallucination or some other, you know, ascribed pathology, but there's very little to support that. The most reasonable interpretation of these experiences are, whoa, you seem to have an extraordinary end-of-life experience, a spiritually transformative experience. You seem to access some other dimension. And the fact that you saw your uh, the dying there, departing loved one, suggests that they're there too. So these are, these are difficult experiences to dismiss. And increasingly we're seeing that as more and more cases come out, um, those who might have been suspect are kind of standing back. Your research is primarily focused on shared death experiences. Why do you think some people do share the death experience of a loved one while others don't? Or they're not aware of it? <laughs> That's the holy grail of the research is why do some people apparently have these experiences and others don't? Now, you just brought up a, a very interesting point, which is one that um, I've entertained. It's hard to validate, but what if everybody's having a shared death experience, but that only a few of us are able to capture it? In other words, a few of us have the consciousness to be totally aware to what's happening uh, at the moment of death or around it. You know, I can't, I don't have a response for that. I can say that I've been at deaths when I've had the SDE, uh, a lot of them, but I've also been at deaths where I haven't. And if you wanted to say that I was an adept with somebody who's 
you know, who can have these experiences with more frequency than others, uh, you would think there might be some consistency in how often I have them. And I don't see it. Uh, I will say that I see a correlation when I do my preparations, when I can do my meditations, when I can get present and calm and do those practices. But if I'm just, you know, at a bedside or someone's dying remotely and I'm busy in my life and distracted, I may not have uh, much experience if, if at, at all, if at all. And for those listening who want to have a shared death experience or connect with the light around the death of a loved one, or maybe even potentially even, which is what a lot of spiritual traditions are all about, connect with the light more at their own death, what can you recommend? Well, we have a whole program for this. This is a longer-winded um, process that, I, I mean, you're right on it. It's a key question. It's the most common question I get. Hey, this shared death experience sounds spectacular. I'd love to have it with my departing loved ones. Can you tell me how to have it? Well, I have developed methods um, and trained in them. Um, but I can, I'm happy to share with your viewers what they basically are. And that is the first one is to really work with the cognitive pieces around, uh, certainly dismissal or discounting that these experiences exist. So I began by providing, uh, research about the shared death experience, its prevalence, who the people are, what they see, and let them know that it seems that these experiences are happening all over the world and uh, there are ways to prepare for them. So the second part of my training would be to uh, really work with your unfinished business. Do your karmic earthly work now. Get rid of any aspects of your psycho-emotional life that could be impeding your ability to be totally present both as the person dying and as the caregiver loved one. So this is a relational process. Remember the SDE has as its uh, dominant motif uh, that sense of journey and also relationship. So if you wanna have the SDE with somebody in particular, do practices with them, do forgiveness, do regrets, do compassion practices, really, kind of clean up your relationship so there's no residual at the time of death. The third piece that I teach is this acceptance of death on its own terms, the sense that you, we don't know when we're going to die, but it's going to happen. And I teach these protocols. So once you have that foundation, the protocols are these um, kind of training methods, guided visualizations, um, we also do simulations, re-choreograph your death in a way that you like it or want it. Not that you're going to get it, but you're going to groove yourself for it. So if the circumstances arise, you can step into this death um, vortex of your choosing and, and just basically, um, you know, we teach how it is that you can stay connected through this death vortex, through the transition process and when I say stay connected, that means you bring your departed, you bring your surviving loved one with you if you're the dying. 
And if you're the dying, you can also call that loved one to be with you in the afterlife. That's a whole set of trainings there, but, but, but people learn them and they practice them and they seem to yield. Uh, and so the other thing that happens most commonly in a human death is that the dying gets so altered um, during the transition, the change of frequency, that they drop contact with their surviving loved ones. So we teach people, once that contact has been dropped, we teach how to reconnect. And they do that. And, and the reconnections can then go on for, you know, hours. Um, but you don't need hours because it's kind of a timeless space. It's, uh, you know, it's the time-space continuum is different there. So I wouldn't be measuring the success of an SDE by how long you feel like you're there. So those are the, those are the ways in which I know how to have uh, an SDE, how to facilitate and how to, um, you know, practice methods that would yield the SDE for the dying and the loved one. Thank you for that, William. And for those listening who have already had a departed loved one and they wish they could reconnect with them, do you have uh, methods for that as well? If you've lost a loved one and you didn't have the shared death experience, or if you had the shared death experience and now you want to get, you know, have more contact, um, you know, there are a variety of uh, methods you can employ. Well, the first and perhaps easiest one is if you, you know, want to take yourself out of it in terms of your self-doubt about your communication, you could go work with a, you know, a medium. And there are a lot of wonderful mediums who do this work and specifically they're answering the response or the, the request um, from people who want to connect with their loved ones. So that's one way there. Um, but if you want to do it on your own, I mean, I, I say as you're going to sleep at night, Really get yourself in a sacred ritual-based position. I say ritual because you want to set up a practice. And the practice that I would suggest is going into yourself, getting calm, uh, honoring all the beings that may be in your space, these spirit guides that are helping and want to assist you. Thank them. Uh, and then have a direct conversation with either the highest being there or all the beings or God, him or her, they self, and just say, I really want to have contact with my departed loved one. Can you give me that? Can you give me that? And just make a really honest, humble plea, and then leave it at that and see what you get. Uh, and I make it practice. Do it a number of times. Do it, you know, four or five days in a row. Beautiful. William, is there anything else you would like to share about light at death? I think the thing about light is that it just presents itself in a variety of different ways. And it's similar to the NDE light, but it's also different in the sense that it serves as a kind of bridge of light that um, serves to connect the dying and the SDE experiencer with the afterlife and we often hear that the experiencer and the dying are traveling up that light. So it's quite a beautiful, um, you know, phenomena that we see in the shared death experience. Can you share a little bit about where your research is headed? What direction it's going in now? We are very interested in studying this phenomena 
that I've identified as the conductor. There seems to be this force that's manifest in the SDE that is in charge of receiving or taking a soul spirit out of a human body and in a sense transporting it into the afterlife. So the conductor appears in a lot of different ways. Uh, one way is that it just appears and you see it. Uh, there's a great story in my book with uh, Ida Nielsen, and she um, she sees her mother in the afterlife. She's remote, I should say. Ida's actually away from her mother, and her mother's actually dying in, in the hospice. And her mother comes to her at night, the night she dies, and, but there's this also this beautiful light being there that Ida's mother is communicating with, and she's asking her, hey, can I talk to Ida? Can I share her this? Can I tell her this? And this light being, you know, which is I'm going to call the conductor, is like, sure, go ahead, do it quick. And then after that's done, they're gone, and the conductor seems to be guiding Ida's mother home. So the conductor uh, is often seen as some presence that can be human or light being-ish, and they can be carrying the dying along. They can be, um, you know, just standing there as a beacon of, to which the dying is moving towards. Oftentimes, the, the conductor is not seen but felt. So it's like the conductor is orchestrating everything and people and the dying, I'm, excuse me, and the loved one can observe people moving and mobilizing in relationship to this being the dying, but, excuse me, the being the conductor, but they don't see it. So that, so this is what we called a situation where the, the uh, conductor is invisible, but it still has a force that's playing out in the management of this transition of a human, you know, soul, spirit, uh, consciousness into an afterlife. Wonderful work you're doing, William. I wish you continued success and thank you for sharing all of this with us. You definitely are helping all of us to feel that there's hope when we lose a loved one. And I love your message around working on your karmic self, working to be a better person while you're alive now and that this light can be accessed even potentially in the here and now. It certainly can be. And I'll say one other uh, area of research uh, that we're doing, and that is with pets. People want to know if they can have the SDE with pets. And the response to that based on the research and my clinical experience is 100% affirmatively, yes, we have lots of persons uh, you know, saying that at the moment of death of a pet, a dog, cat, bird, horse, what have you, they went into the initial stages of the afterlife of them. They went with them along this journey. What's interesting about this is um, that, you know, so many of us um, euthanize our pets because we don't want them to suffer anymore and their quality of life is greatly diminished. 
so you can set up the conditions where you can be present. You can set up, uh, you know, the right feel and whatever your particular religious tradition is or spiritual tradition, you can put all those pieces into a ceremony and then have your pet uh, sacredly euthanized so that they can, you know, drop their body, be free of it. And you can be with it. You know, you can, as a, as a loved one uh, to this pet, you can share in the journey with them into an afterlife. And so we we're getting more and more cases that way. And I'm very pleased around that because so many people ask about their pets because uh, they you know, are so beloved. Uh, so, yeah. And then the last thing I think we're really looking at is um, how, what types of relationships uh, have SDEs um, more frequently? Is it, you know, parents and children? Is it spouses? Is it siblings? Is it strangers? You know, we know the relationship is important. So the last one being strangers is not going to be that prevalent. But we also know that we have people reporting that they see somebody that they don't even recognize coming to pick up and greet their loved one. And they do say that it was, you know, kind of an elevated being, but they still don't know who it is. So we're really interested in who's having these experiences and how they're coming about. Love and relationships may be the most important aspect of our lives. And thank you so much for all the great work you're doing, William. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. I mean, I really appreciate being here. And, uh, I'm really glad that you're bringing this work and the others that you interview out into the world because it's such a beautiful service. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. 